0: family, will you be seated and take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 31 in a moment when we stand again and read. We're going to read the first few verses of uh, chapter 31, although we will be in uh, the second half of 30 and all of chapter 31 this morning. Here in a moment. Before we do that, uh, let me tell you a couple of things. First, we want to thank the guys and ladies who were a part of our uh, worship team and media team who worked diligently to reorganize all of this and construct what's now behind me. We told you about that that would be uh, working last week. It took them a long time. This was not easy, an easy project. And so thank you to those uh, who worked really diligently last week to ensure all of it was done and cleaned up and ready to go uh, between one Sunday and the next. Uh, As you were coming in through the lobby, uh, hopefully you grabbed one of these. If you didn't, uh, make sure you pick one up on your way out. Starting next Sunday on March the 14th, our elders are calling our congregation to 21 days of prayer. Now, this is what we believe. This is kind of the theme verse. It's in the back of this prayer guide is 1 John five fourteen, that we have this confidence that if anything we ask according to the will of God, he hears us. And this is what we want to do over the next three weeks, starting next Sunday, is diligently praying together as a congregation that God would do things in our midst and through our ministries and in our own lives that we cannot do on our own that he would move leading into Easter in our church. These three weeks really are divided thematically. You're gonna begin by praying for yourself, praying that God would purify your heart, that God would focus your mind on his mission to make disciples in this world. And then in the second week, we'll pray together for one another along those same lines. And finally, in the week before Easter, we will be diligently praying for our community that God would save people That God would draw men and women and boys and girls to salvation in Him using our Easter service, that they would hear the gospel on that day and believe. We're also going to be on that Wednesday before Easter. We always have an Easter week service. We're going to call our church to a day of fasting that we will break our fast at the Lord's table that day, diligently praying for God to move. The instructions uh, about the prayer of the week, the three weeks of prayer and the day of fasting are all inside of this uh, prayer guide. And so you'll want to make sure that you have this uh, starting next Sunday. There'll also be videos every day that's not a Sunday or a Wednesday, because on Sundays and Wednesdays, we gather together and we're online. So we'll pray together on those days. On days that aren't Sundays and Wednesdays, our elders are having our recording videos for each of those days, talking about the Bible passage and leading us in uh, corporate prayer. So if you're watching with us online and you say, wait, I can't get one of the prayer guides. Well, if you go to nansmanriver.com slash pray21, right on the cover of the prayer guide. Uh, There's a digital version of this guide there, everything that we've been praying for on all of those days. All of our social media channels will have uh, daily posts with what we're praying for that day, what the scripture reading is that day, as well as uh, the videos from our elders corresponding with each day. Here's what we want. We want everyone in our congregation, whether you're a member here or you just faithfully regularly attend, we want everyone dedicated for the next three weeks to asking God to do what only he can do, believing this, that he hears our prayers and that he will answer them. So we'll call you to join in this prayer with us next Sunday. Don't start now. Next Sunday, they're all dated, so it's user-friendly, okay? Starting next Sunday, we will pray together for three weeks leading into Easter. I invite you to now stand with me. I'm going to read just the first three verses of Genesis 31 because it kind of gives us a good picture of what's happening here in this text. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred And I will be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is truth and power. That it changes lives. That it illuminates our steps. That it convicts our hearts. Opens our eyes to your truth in your world. So God, would you help us now to live lives of faith according to your word. Help us today as we consider that life of faith when facing opposition as Jacob did. Let us be those who do not cower and shrink back when this world opposes our mission. Let us, God, be people who understand that you have conquered this world and that you are on our side. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The story of Jacob has been a mess so far. Born grabbing the heel of his brother, even getting the name heel grabber, meaning deceiver, in his teen years, having his brother sell his birthright for a mere cup of soup, later scheming with his mother to deceive his father into stealing the blessing of Isaac, intended for Esau, but given to Jacob. His brother, now seeking to kill him, flees from his homeland alone, traveling through the wilderness, the long journey from Canaan to Haran in Mesopotamia, not knowing where he is going, not knowing if he will even find the extended family for which he is looking, encountering God on that wilderness road, receiving what his father and grandfather before him had received, the promise of God, that God would be with him and bless him and protect him, because he had a plan for Jacob. But because of the past sins in Jacob's life, when he arrives there in in the land of his forefathers, he does encounter his extended family. His uncle, who would become his father-in-law, deceives him, works 14 years so that he could first marry Leah and then marry Rachel who were at one another's throats. We saw this last week in the messiness of the life of Jacob, just how much hatred there was between Leah and Rachel using their relationship with their husband, their children, their their handmaids, and even the naming of their children in spite of one another. And yet all along, God has a plan that God is doing what only he can do in the lives of Jacob and his family, ultimately bringing about the 12 tribes of Israel through this messiness. Jacob has gone from a life of deception to a life just embroiled in turmoil, a hornet's nest there in Mesopotamia, now leading to culmination of direct opposition from his father-in-law the one who lied to him about which wife he would marry first, is now going to directly oppose the plan of God for Jacob's life as Jacob seeks to return with his family to Canaan. And we read a story like this, and it's, it's a long story, and uh, I'm going to tell it for you here in just a moment. But we, we read a story like this and, and we often wonder, what really, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I, I'm not a shepherd. I'm not living in Mesopotamia. I'm not moving to a new land. I, I, I don't have all of these family struggles that he has. What does this have to do with me? This is a picture of a man growing in his faith. And we're seeing that over the last few weeks in the life of Jacob. This man grow in his faith his trust of God, and and now being directly opposed by his father-in-law. He still operates within that faith that he has in God. So this is a picture for us of how we too should live lives of faith even when we experience direct opposition. And we're going to approach this text somewhat thematically uh, as, as we see how we are to trust in the Lord in the midst of opposition. So let me just tell the whole story, summarize it at least. Jacob decides after He's worked the 14 years that he had to work for both of his wives, for his father-in-law and the 11 sons and one daughter who were born in the previous passage are born from uh, Leah and Rachel and their two uh, servants to Jacob. Now it is time for him to go home. And somewhere between year 14 and year 20, because we know from the text he lived there 20 years, he approaches his father-in-law and says, it's time for me to go. But his father-in-law recognizes that in the period of time that Jacob has been living there with him, he has grown very wealthy. And he attributes that to Jacob. And so he schemes to try to keep him there and deceives him yet again. They strike this deal, and we'll see it when we're reading the text, over which sheep and goats would belong to Jacob and which would stay there in Haran, with his father-in-law. And, and so he seeks to deceive him further. Finally, Jacob goes to his wives and says, your father does not favor me any longer. And the Lord appears to Jacob and speaks directly to him and says, it's time to go. You need to pack your bags, pack your belongings, pack your wives and your family and let's go. And so they leave without telling Laban where they're going. He was off and he leaves and Jacob's father-in-law, the father of his wives, Rachel and Leah, pursues him as if he is an enemy. Rachel having stolen, just a little side note in the story, having stolen the false gods who were the household gods there in the house that she grew up in. And she even deceives her father as he, once, as he once again catches up with them. There is a final confrontation between father-in-law and son-in-law, ultimately leading to a truce, a pact that is made before Laban goes back home and Jacob returns to Canaan. But all of this is showing us how we too can live in the midst of opposition to God's work in our lives. So first... Trusting in the Lord's plan in the face of opposition. We already saw in Genesis 31, uh, 1 through 3, that the Lord has called Jacob to go home. But some years before that, Jacob determines in his own mind that it would be the right move. Going back into Genesis 30 in verses 25 and 26, we read, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, this is his 11th son, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given to you. So it's been at least 14 years that from the time that Jacob showed up amongst his extended family to this point. And he says, it's time for me to go. He's discerned in his own mind. This is not the place that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not concerned about what's going to happen in Canaan. Is Esau still angry and seeking to kill him? Is his father still hurt from the deception? What will happen when he shows up with these two wives and numerous children? Will this be taken away from him as the power structure that existed in Canaan over the course of this at least decade and a half changed somewhat? It's not that there aren't worries ahead of them, but he recognizes that this is not the place that God had called him to be, that God wanted him to be somewhere else. And so he goes to his father-in-law and says, it's time for us to, I've, I've worked the amount of time I'm supposed to work. It's time for us to divide the spoils. And after another deception that happens later in this chapter, jacob realizes his father-in-law is not going to allow him to leave peacefully and so god speaks directly to him that it is time for him to go there at the beginning of genesis 31 the lord even then provides external confirmation of this calling through rachel and leah now remember rachel and leah as far as we know in the text hate one another all inform- the only information we've been given about their relationship is it was one of envy and strife and bitter, civil, bitter sibling rivalry. But here, Jacob goes to them, and watch what happens. Picking up in verse 4 of Genesis 31, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the fields where his flock was and said to them, "'I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before.'" but the God of my fathers has been with me. So your father's not been with me, but my God has. And he kind of outlines for his wives really what's happened over the course of the last few years. And they respond like this. In verse 14, Rachel and Leah answered him and said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded to him uh, by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. These two women who in the previous story are naming their children in spite of their sister, who are at one another's throats, who are using their relationships to to gain power over one another and influence with their husband are finally in agreement. They have seen what their husband has seen. It is time to leave. Then the Lord provides this external confirmation from these two women. I think this is an interesting note for us, that when God is leading us, so often we become paralyzed because we don't know what to do. When I introduced this sermon, you may have thought, this is a sermon I need to hear because I just, I struggled deciding what God's will is for my life. Listen, it's never as complicated as you think it is. It's never going to be as difficult as you think it's going to be. Here's how we know what God's will is because God's directly speaking to Jacob and God doesn't audibly directly speak to us in the way that he does to him, but we have God's word. We have the revelation of God contained in his word. So here's what we do. We read it and we do what it says. We live our lives like God is speaking to us, not out of context, not reading a passage like this and think God wants us to go To Israel because that's what God wanted Jacob to do, but understanding its context and applying its truth in our lives, we live faithfully to God, obediently to him. And then we just walk down the path that God puts in front of us, continuing to live faithful lives. And sometimes, often actually, God will put these external confirmations in our lives to tell us we're going along the right path. Can I tell you what one of the best of them is? That you may not think, and and sometimes I wonder if we use this well enough. One of the things I'm proud of about this church is that the vast majority of you are actively engaged in small group. You attend small group. You're faithful to study the word of God together. You're faithful to pray for one another. You're faithful to care for one another and be in community with one another. Probably the closest relationships you have in this church, for most of you, are in your small group. But here's what I wonder. When you're faced with a major life choice, do you go into your small group and ask them for their wisdom? Maybe you ask them for their prayer, but do you actually ask them for their wisdom? Do you do what Jacob does with his wife here and lay out the truth and say, what should we do? I believe we should do that. We should regularly allow the people of God in our lives that God has placed in our lives. And for most of you in this church, it's probably those men and women, other families, other couples that are in your small group. Do do you appeal to their wisdom? looking for that external confirmation because sometimes another Christian will see it and they're gonna ask questions like, how is this helping you achieve the mission of God in your life? How is this helping you walk towards holiness and Christ-likeness? And maybe we don't want those answers to those questions so we don't ask them. But this is the, how God works in our lives. He leads us as we follow him obediently and then he brings other people along to help us guide that path. And yet, opposition, opposition will often still remain. And it does in Jacob's life. His father in law, Laban, opposes and even misconstrues Jacob's reasons for leaving. He does this both at the beginning of the story in Genesis 30, and when he finally catches up to them, having pursued them like enemies in Genesis 31. Let's look at the Genesis 30 passage first, starting in verse 26. Jacob says, give me my wives and my children from whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I've given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give you. Jacob said to him, you yourself know that I've served you and how your livestock have fared with me. So in this initial conversation he's having with his father-in-law, he says, it's time for me to go. And his father-in-law kind of appeals to the Lord. He says, by divination, I have determined that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, remember, this is not a a man who serves God. He's actually going to pursue this family because they've taken the false gods out of his home in the next chapter. This is a deceptive person. And so just because he says that he is... you know, that he's learned this through divination of the Lord doesn't mean that he actually has. This could just be a manipulation on his part knowing that that appeal is going to mean something to Jacob. But he recognizes, I'm richer now because of you. And so you really need to stay. So he tries to talk him out of it. How often does this happen in our lives? I've watched this happen in the lives, particularly of people maybe that wanna go to the mission field far too often. Listen to me, parents, let me just talk to parents for a minute. I didn't do this in the first service. This is spontaneous. Sometimes I get myself in trouble when I get spontaneous in the sermon. Parents, your teenager comes to you, your young adult comes to you, and they say, I think God wants me to go spend a semester, a summer, two years before, during, after college, serving the Lord overseas, proclaiming the gospel amongst the nations, your first question better not be, well, how are you gonna make money? How are you gonna work this out? What's this gonna to do to your long-term plan? What's, it, what's this gonna to do to your education? What's this gonna to do to your career? Isn't this gonna set you back? Listen, that cannot be the way that we talk to people about God's plan for their lives. That's exactly what Jacob's father-in-law does to him, though. He says, let's talk money. Because that's what's going to really matter, right? Let's talk about money. You've been a big blessing to me in my life, Jacob. So, so you name your price, big boy. What's it worth to you to not go home? That's what he does. And he mixes in a little spirituality in it, right? A little divination, a little bit of the Lord said, the Lord showed me alongside of the how much money do you really want, trying to talk him out of it. A couple of years, a few years later, when Jacob finally leaves with his family and Laban catches up to him, the manipulation continues. Genesis 31, starting in verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. This is Jordan. It's on the other side of the Jordan River from uh, Israel. And Laban said to Jacob, "'What have you done that you have tricked me "'and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? "'Why did you flee secretly and trick me "'and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away "'with mirth and song, with tambourine and lyre? "'And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons "'and my daughters farewell? "'Now you have done foolishly. "'It is in my power to do you harm.'" But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. You notice the manipulation continues here. Do you see it? He tries to guilt him, Levon does to Jacob, for what he is doing. He says, he says, why'd you leave like this? You didn't have to leave like this. we had have thrown you a party. Come on, Jacob. It's 20 years they've been at this. And he's still putting his arm around and saying, don't you know I'm on your team? Don't you you know that I support you? Why did you leave the way that you do? Why did you pack everything up? We're told in the text, uh, in another part of the text, that he was away shearing his sheep. And so because he was away, Jacob took that opportunity. Why did you flee like that? Taking my my daughters and my grandchildren as if they were somehow held captive by the sword? Why would you flee in secret? Why'd you deceive me? This man who's been deceiving Jacob for 20 years looks at him and says, why did you deceive me? Why'd you treat me like this? Tries to guilt him, this same kind of manipulation. And so often this is what opposition to God's plan in our lives look like too. People, People are gonna act like they care. People are going to act like they, they, they have your best interest at heart. They're going to act like they, they really want you. And, and let's just make sure we maintain this in a Christian perspective. People are going to act like they care about the mission of God to make disciples too. And put their arm around you and say, why, 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 why wouldn't you listen to me? Why wouldn't you trust me? Even though they've proven they can't be trusted just as Jacob's father-in-law had. I would say, I would imagine for every Christian in this room or watching with us online right now, you would say uh, just with absolute that your desire is to follow the plan of God. Wouldn't Wouldn't we all agree with that? My desire is to follow the plan of God. But what actually happens when we face opposition? So often we face the kind of opposition that Jacob faced and we shrink back from it. As Mike Tyson said, that great theologian, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody thinks they know what they're doing until opposition comes. I find it interesting, great boxer Mike Tyson who said that actually lost the fight to Evander Holyfield right after he had said those words. The 11th round, Evander Holyfield knocks out Mike Tyson. Why? Because the opposition of Mike Tyson wasn't enough. He just kept going with the plan. Listen, church, keep pursuing the plan of God. Don't worry about the opposition. Don't worry about the adversity. Don't worry about the persecution. God is in control. He's got this. And his plan will come to fruition in your life adversity in the Christian life is real. It's not potential. It ought to be present. We should be seeking the things of God to the point in our lives that people around us and the enemy in this world actively seeks to stop us. And if we are relying on our own abilities to overcome it, we will fail every time. We will fail to overcome the adversary on our own, but God is able. This is why we're going to him in 21 days of prayer before Easter because there's things we can't do that only he can. So we pursue the plan of God and the mission of God for our church and the mission of God for our lives regardless of the opposition in this world. Number two, trusting in the Lord's provision in the, in the face of opposition. The Lord in this story richly blesses Jacob. Jacob in his last year serving his father-in-law. Go back to chapter 30, picking up in verse 29. Jacob said to him, you yourself know that I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will, keep, if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flocks and keep it. And Jacob presents a plan which we're going to see here in just a moment to his father-in-law but then the Lord says this, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. We we see here something very similar to what Jacob's grandfather Abraham said to the wicked king of Sodom. When the wicked king of Sodom came out and wanted to bless Abraham and Abraham said, I'm not going to take anything from you. We have similar language here with his grandson Jacob and his father-in-law when he says, okay, what do you want me to give you? He says, I don't want you to give me anything. I don't want you to give me anything. I'm going to trust in the Lord. The Lord is going to be the one who richly blesses me. And his father-in-law is going to seek to, to, to deceive him again, but that deception does not affect the Lord's provision in Jacob's life, let's look at Jacob's plan, in verse, starting in verse 32. He says, "Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you, one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen." Laban said, "Good, let it be as you have said." but that's not what he's going to do. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he said a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So here's what he says. And when we kind of read this to our ear, it almost sounds like he's looking for wages now. But remember, he said, I don't want anything from you now. So this is is talking about future wages. So Jacob's agreeing to stay. He stays for some period of time, long enough for multiple generations of sheep and goats to be born under his care. And he says, now, the dominant, this is what we need to know about sheep and goats, just really quickly. The dominant trait among sheep and goats is that they don't have spots and speckles and stripes. All right? That 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 is the recessive gene. And so you have to have two different sheep with that recessive gene to produce one that has that, right? And so Laban's deception is this, I'm going to take out all of the ones, he sends his sons that day, and they take them three days away, all of the ones that would have that gene. And I'm going to leave you only with the white ones, because the white gene is dominant. And so with a mixture of and you can read it in the text here that Jacob devises this plan to, to strip some, uh, uh, some branches and lays them in front of the sheep. So there's a, kind of this mixture of superstition, knowledge of how animal husbandry works, and ultimately the work of the Lord, no matter what Jacob is looking for, because his father-in-law continues to change it uh, from, from one uh, generation of sheep to the next. Uh, But no matter what Jacob is looking for, that's what's born to those sheep and goats. If it's spotted, they come out spotted. If it's speckled, they come out speckled. If it's striped, they come out striped. Because the Lord is the one that is ultimately in control. He actually tells his wives about this. starting in verse 6 of Genesis 31. He says, you know that I've served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my way just 10 times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that, that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and moulted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So Genesis 30 kind of ends with this plan and it's the narrative account of of Jacob doing this. And you kind of get this sense of superstition and maybe a little bit of wisdom about picking the stronger ones. And, And there's some interesting information out there just as far as mating of sheep and goats go, that the stronger ones, the more active ones may actually contain that recessive gene uh, over the pure white ones. And so you kind of get that information. But when Jacob goes to tell his wives about it, who does he credit? The Lord alone. It wasn't about the sticks that he laid in front of him. It wasn't about his knowledge of animal husbandry. It was the Lord alone, that the Lord had appeared to him and said, this is how it will be. God worked. So hear me, church, it is not our own ingenuity or even our own good fortune that provides our needs. It is the Lord. Even in the face of opposition, if people would, would actively seek to take that which is yours, know this, the Lord protects that which is most important. And the number of sheep and the number of goats that you have in your herd, recognizing that I don't think anybody in here has sheep and goats But the number of sheep and goats in your herd is not nearly the most important thing. As we saw last week, the goodness that God is bringing about according to his will ultimately is our own Christ-likeness. It is our own salvation. And it is God who richly blesses with these things in our lives And even the material things that you have in this world come because God is the one that is providing it. And know this, even in the face of great opposition, God will continue to provide. He will continue to be good to you, giving you what you need, just as he does with Jacob here, richly blessing him in the face of opposition. Third, trusting in the Lord's protection in the face of opposition. The Lord protects Jacob and his family from Laban. Look, Look at Genesis 31, starting verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So Jacob has fled without telling his father-in-law that he's fleeing and his father-in-law is going to pursue his family as if they are enemies and the Lord intervenes. Now, in Genesis 30, his father-in-law appeals to divination, right? God has showed me this without us actually being told that God did it. Here, God does it. Here, God shows up. That the Lord himself shows up to protect. And notice what he says. He says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This is what the Lord says to Laban. Your opinion is worthless. It's not for you to try to talk him out of it. And it's not for you to try to encourage him to do it. You're the opposition. And you don't get a say here. So the Lord himself appears to protect Jacob. And it, does, and it works. Laban recognizes this and he goes. And even though he still kind of tries to guilt Jake, doesn't follow the word of the Lord completely, Ultimately, a truce is struck between the two. Deceiver with deceiver. Now, one of these deceivers has encountered the Lord and has had a, we've seen a progression of growth in his life. The other, if there was, we are not told about it in Scripture. But it is the Lord alone, not either of these deceivers, who can be trusted to enforce the treaty that they make here at the end of Genesis 31. Pick up with me in verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I've set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So they put a marker there. And they say, I won't cross it to do you harm. You won't cross it to do me harm. But the history, history tells us neither of these men can be trusted but it is the Lord by which they swear and it is the Lord who keeps it. It is the Lord who is ultimately protecting Jacob as he brings him along the path that God has called him to. And we're told that Jacob swears by the fear of his father, Isaac. The word fear there is capitalized in your Bible because it is talking about God himself. That it is, it is the God that Isaac believed in. It is the God that Abraham believed in and it is the God that Jacob now believes in who he is trusting to keep this truce within his family, that they will do no harm. It is the Lord who ultimately protects us. And listen to me, that which the Lord protects is far more important than what you likely think it is. You see, when we think of the protection of the Lord, we're so often thinking like, God's going to keep me from getting in a car wreck or God's going to keep me from coming into some kind of physical harm in some way. Listen, there is lots that this world and the opposition of this world can do to these frail temporal bodies of ours, but there is absolutely nothing that this world can do to that which God protects, which is our eternal souls. It is he and he alone who holds us in the palm of his hand. And while there is nothing wrong with praying for and asking for and trusting God for physical protection, if that does not manifest itself in our lives, it is okay. Because that which God protects is far more valuable. It is his promise that he will keep our souls from perishing. So what? Is my faith evident when I encounter worldly opposition. Last week when we were looking at the mess in Jacob's life, I ended with a similar question. I want to pose it again. Do I trust the Lord to accomplish his purposes when surrounded by the messiness of this world? And we ended last week with seeing that God works all things together for his glory and our good, our good being our Christ-likeness. And so, God is accomplishing his purpose as everything seems to rage around us. And so this question just naturally builds as the text built from the messiness to the opposition. So the question is, does, is my faith demonstrated? Can, can, is it obvious that I am operating as a person of faith, even in the midst of opposition? And it's important for us to remember who our opposition is. You may, when I say the word opposition, I actually picture a human being. And that could be true, just as it was in Jacob's life. But our primary opposition, Scripture tells us, isn't of, this, isn't of flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 tells us that, right, our enemy isn't of flesh and blood, but it's powers and principalities, and it's the enemy of God, it's the enemy of his church and the people that make up his church. And so our opposition isn't so always so easily identified with a name and a face, And yet we, regardless if we can see the enemy who opposes us or not, are called to operate in faith in the midst of it. Last week we used the middle part of Romans chapter 8 to show how God is working all of these things for our good and his glory. Paul continues, just as this text in Genesis kind of has this natural continuation to it, so does the argument that Paul makes in Romans 8. Picking up in verse 31 where we left off last week, so right, God's working all things together and he poses this question. What then shall we say to these things? That's his question. If God's working all things together for the good good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hear me clearly this morning, church. There is no opposition in this world that can overcome those who are in faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing this world can throw at us that will steal you out of his hand. So stop worrying about it. Stop fixating on the opposition. We get so distracted by looking at the world and how the world is opposed to Christianity when the scripture clearly tells us that the world will always be opposed to Christianity. We become so distracted by looking at the world that we become paralyzed. We start worrying about how will God fulfill his plan and how will God provide for me and how will God protect me. When God's promised, he'll do those things. And there is nothing in this world that can come between you and him. There's nothing in this world that can stand in the way of the mission of God's church and his people. So stop fixating on the wrong thing. Put your eye on Jesus. Put your eye on the one who died in your place, who was raised from the dead, who now ensures that there is nothing in this world, seen or unseen, present or future, that could ever separate you from the love of God. There is No opposition in this world that comes close, close to overcoming what Jesus is doing in your life. So live as men and women and boys and girls of faith, trusting that God is able to do, even in the midst of opposition, what he has promised he'll do. Are you sitting here today watching with us online? You say, I've never come to faith in Jesus. I don't have that assurance. Well, today you can. This promise can be true in your life if you will but believe that Jesus is exactly who this passage in Romans 8 says he is, that he died for you, that he rose again by the power of God, assuring your salvation. If you will believe that and turn to him, then he too will hold you in the palm of his hand, never letting you go. And there's nothing in this world that will overcome you if you will but believe that. Oh, church, let's stop looking at those who oppose us. and Fix our eyes back on Jesus. Fix our eyes back on the one who is leading us and guiding us, whose word lights our paths, so that we may be used by him to accomplish his purposes in this world. Let us be those who demonstrate our faith, and it is evident to everyone around us, no matter what this world throws at us. Let's pray together. God, would you help us because we are so easily distracted often by what's raging around us that we take, our mission, or we take our eyes off you and your mission for us. Let us live according to your plan. Let us trust in your provision. Let us stand firm in your protection because no matter what this world does to us, They can never snatch us out of your hand. So thank you, God, that you are the one who holds us fast. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.